0: Nine bad financial decisions that everyone makes. Is there
1: something to that? It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Yeah, Brian, I'm so excited about this show because we're going to basically do... A deep dive into behavioral finance, into behavioral economics, because a lot of what we cover are like, you know, it's blocking and tackling. It's X's and O's when it comes to financial decision making. But a lot of what we do when we make financial decisions has more to do with the behavior than the academic nature of it. And that's kind of what we're going to go through today.
0: Well, I'm hoping everybody who watches this doesn't treat this as a coping mechanism. Sure. Oh! That's why I'm like that is because it's baked into the recipe. No, this is supposed to be something where you learn to spot what's going on because this mm-hmm. stuff is baked into the recipe. But there is a way for you to kind of master it, move beyond and figure out how you can harness the power of some of these things that are just influences that can drive your your actions and your behavior. Absolutely. So there's two books that kind of influence this show in a lot of ways. Bo claims he has not read this book, but I, I got it because every time I, I when I was doing the Chris Voss book, the yeah. Never Split the Difference, he's an FBI guy who is um, a negotiator. And
1: I, you use a lot of these tactics. I, here's the thing. So uh, back in the day, we'll talk a lot about back in the day. Uh, you and I shared an Audible account. Yep. Well, frankly, because I was a tightwad. And you had good taste in books. This was in your Audible, but I never read this. I'm not familiar am not familiar. Because as I with was listening book.
0: to it, I was like, that, that, that son of a gun, Bo. I can totally see when he's tried to use this on me. But it, just to tell you, what Chris explains is that the FBI recognized after Waco, Texas— You know, it did not go well, that they need to throw the book out on how they were handling hostage negotiations and other things like that. And he just goes into all the different behavioral components. And here's what his quote was. What I am saying is that while our decisions may be largely irrational, that doesn't mean there aren't consistent patterns, principles and rules behind how we act. And once you know these mental patterns, you start to see ways to influence them.
1: So I think the takeaway there is that uh, human beings don't always act in a rational manner. We're not completely rational beings that this is a black decision, this is a white decision, this is the right decision, this is the wrong decision. That's not the way that we always behave, even though it, it seems like perhaps that should be the way we behave. It seems yeah, in sense.
0: theory, we should be rational, functioning beings, but it just doesn't work that way. And that led to You know, there's the Misbehaving book by Richard Thaler, which is The Making of Behavioral Economics. Now, what's funny is if you go watch any of the interviews, Richard's very quick to tell you, hey, I'm not the first person to come up with behavioral economics. Actually, Adam Smith, which anybody who follows me, matter of fact, we had a content meeting, and I was shocked because I had to give Rebe a whole education. Adam Smith is huge to me. Like last year, I can remember my daughter... When she's doing her social studies, when I found out they were studying Adam Smith, it made me so happy because realize the the timing of when Wealth of Nations was published in the 1700s with the birth of America, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence. So there's a lot of things. And, and Adam Smith, when he talks, when he in a lot of his writings, including Wealth of Nations, he does talk about overconfidence. He does talk about loss aversion, self control. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was cool that Richard gave him a shout out. But if you go deeper. Richard is going to give you examples of things that are happening in everybody's life that are definitely influenced Mm -hmm. by behavioral economics.
1: And and I think it's realistic that um, we all think about money irrationally. Even if we can be the most educated, most well-informed, we all approach it in somewhat of an irrational manner. So let's jump into this. I want to set the stage for you guys. So y'all know I'm
0: a big Disney fan kind of missing going to the Disney parks because mm-hmm. we were supposed to have done that in the spring. We were going out to Disneyland. And one of my favorite things when you're at Disney, well, I thought would be one of my favorite things, it's kind of a mirage, was you get hungry and you're walking through the parks and you catch a whiff. Yeah, oh, my gosh. That, that is the best smelling food that I could put in my mouth. And it's a, it's a Walt Disney World turkey leg. Now, these things look glorious. They're huge. They're scrumptious looking. But then you buy these things, and unfortunately to me, the taste does not match the smell. Because uh, to me, it was a very Mm -hmm. gristle-filled, super sodium-filled. I mean, it was just not everything I thought the smell would give. But here's the thing. When you pay $12.50 for a turkey leg, you eat that thing. Mm-hmm. You, you, you. Don't, even if you're not enjoying it, you get it down because you've got to recoup the cost of what you've dumped into that turkey leg.
1: So there is a behavioral finance concept that describes that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to lay out some stories. We're going to lay out some examples for you guys today. And in the chat, if you're hanging out with us live, go ahead and start throwing them out there. If you think you can guess what behavioral finance concept we're talking about, throw it out there. So you just said you go to Disney. You smell the turkey leg, you pay the twelve fifty. dollars you start gnawing on it, you get like three or four bites in. And it's you say, not
0: you, everything you thought it was going to be. But you say,
1: you know what, I'm going to finish it. I'm going <laughs> to keep eating this thing, right? Isn't that what you say? What I think is interesting, if you do research, by the way, is a whole thing about the Disney World turkey legs.
0: There are bloggers who talk about you should share this with somebody. Now, we're in a COVID era now where that just seems ridiculous. But I will tell you, even pre-COVID, I would no
1: more want to share a turkey leg. I've been married 22 years, still not sharing a turkey leg. That's kind of gross. Back in 2011, last time you and I went to Disney together, (laughs) I don't remember us walking down uh, sharing a turkey leg. So what is the personal finance concept that that represents?
0: Well, it's, it's, it's a sunk cost fallacy. Here's the thing, guys. There's no reason, if you've already dumped the money into this and you realize it's just not as good as you thought it was going to be, you don't have to justify the action by continuing to consume it. But guess what? You will because somehow we feel like it's okay. It's the same thing if you went to a horrible concert mm-hmm. or it's raining outside you know, in, on the night of the concert. You know it's at an amphitheater. You still are going
1: to show up yep. just because you've spent the money on the tickets. But this isn't just limited to or related to turkey legs at Disney World. We actually see this all of the time in the personal finance and the financial arena. Uh, a really easy example that we talk about all the time that we see with clients and prospects is you put some money into an investment that's gone bad, but you continue to hold it because you can't, you can't settle losing for that money. You have, to, you have to make the money back before you can think about exiting, it, e- exiting the position.
0: Now, you have an analogy. I've, I've heard you use this with clients and prospects. Something about a bicycle... Yeah, uh, so in the market, if you
1: think about if you think about a valley, you have a, a peak on one end and you go through a trough and you come to the peak on the other. And if you were riding a bicycle through this valley, and you're riding down, <laughs> my and description the,
0: was horrible. About and it. at the
1: bottom, <laughs> you get a flat tire. This is what I always ask clients and prospects: Would you ride that flat tire back up to the top and then change it, or perhaps? Would you change the tire at the bottom of the valley and have a better ride up? Well, a lot of times with investing, it's that way. I've got this stock. I've got this dog. And man, it's just not done well. But perhaps that's because it's a bad company or the economy's bad. Do you want to ride the recovery in that stock? Or perhaps might it be better for you to move that into a better asset moving forward to come out of that valley? A lot of times people don't do that and it's because they struggle with the idea of the sunk cost fallacy.
0: I've even I think it even goes beyond that. if you think about the cycle of market emotions, but how often do we see people throw even more money oh, yeah. at a bad investment because they, they just say, I'm gonna double it I'm down. I'm gonna double I'm down. Gonna, down. so they take good money and they chase after the bad investment. So don't let sunk cost fallacy Um, really derail what can happen. Make sure the investments, the reason you own them is because they're good investments for the long term, not because you're trying to cover up a mistake of the past. Love it. All right. So here's the second situation I want to share with you. I go every two years to Las Vegas for the SEMA Auto Accessory Show. And one of the things is is that we we eat out there, but we don't eat the nicest meals. But I, I want to share with you guys Last year, last November, pre-COVID, um, we did all right. I mean, everybody in my group made a few hundred dollars mm-hmm. playing craps. And even though we're not big spenders or foodies, typically, we went to the nicest steak restaurant. And it, when they threw out a special, and this special was like the steak cost a gazillion dollars, we we're like, bring it. And I'm telling you, every one of us, even though there was four of us, this is not. this is just an example picture because sure. we've been doing this trip for a while, that bill was ridiculous. Uh-huh. I mean, it was like $200, $250 a person. Mm-hmm. Right? We would no more in the man the moon go spend that much on food. But because we had won it, it, had, it didn't feel like that money was the same $250 I would go. Like, you could buy a lot with two. It was because I won it in Las Vegas that it just seemed like fake. It didn't it's seem It, it didn't real.
1: seem real. Uh, and so what the personal finance fallacy, the personal finance behavioral economics idea that you fell prey to was mental accounting. And this occurs when we assign different values to money because of where we came from. You and your buddies would have never gone and eaten that gazillion dollar steak, but because you perceived that money to be free money, new money, found money, you decided to go buy the steak.
0: It's exactly right. And we see this happen mm-hmm. all the time. When I mean, you think about the financial concept i'm thinking about is how often you know even as a kid you your grandma sends you a birthday card mm-hmm. birthday money gets spent you yep. know you're not saving that yep. you know and, and but there's something to that cuz money is a dollar that grandma gives you is the same as the dollar you earned and there's even a term for that yeah though.
1: money is fungible 1 from this source is the same thing as 1 for, from that source so if you are someone who comes into gifted money. Treat it like it was money that you earned. We see this all the time in the financial world when someone uh, wins the lottery. We don't see that all the time, but maybe they sell a business, they get an inheritance, they get some insurance proceeds, and all of a the sudden they start spending the money very differently than if they had just earned that from their working wages, from going to work every day. If you want to be a financial mutant, you have to realize that that money is in fact fungible. $100 in one hand is the same as $100 in the other hand no matter where it comes from. And I
0: I just give the advice, don't let the surroundings also, because you mentioned where it comes from. The source could be that it was like a lottery winner. And Mm -hmm. man, we know there's a lot of lottery winners that struggle with keeping resources when they come to them. I think it is because that mental accounting in their head. But I'd also say, be careful of your surroundings. A lot of us have a different mindset when we're on vacation. We're just like, you know, this money's not real. You know, I'm just going to spend and it doesn't matter because I think that's definitely having an influence. And Vegas has that same impact Absolutely. too, as I'm even proof. You know, a tightwad like me, having those thoughts
1: shows you that it where happens to everyone. Are.
0: So let's talk about, and Bo, you, you, you probably have noticed we have a prop on the, mm-hmm. on the desk today.
1: Yeah, so Brian, I want to tell you, I've got a deal for you. And uh-huh. everyone knows that Brian Preston loves a deal. What if I told you that I would sell you an action figure from one of your favorite enterprises of all time, right? And I wanted to sell you a Bubba Fett action figure, and you can buy it for the low-cost price of $11,999.99.
0: Would you buy it? There's not an action figure out there that I would spend $12,000. I'm shocked. When I saw this... We had FTE Daniel do the research. I was like, oh my goodness. I had no idea. I mean, I was thinking these things were worth two or $300. And then Daniel pops this and By the up way, I here. still
1: think it'd be crazy to be worth $200.
0: I would no more than the man in the moon. I know I keep saying that saying, but that's how big it is. I would spend $12,000 on an action
1: figurine. Mm-hmm. Yet, as we stand here right now, you actually have... That very action figure. So that made me, the very rational one of the two of us, say, Hey, Brian, we ought to sell that Boba Fett. Think about if we were to sell that thing and we could go invest those dollars and we could grow it at seven times over or 88 times over, how amazing would that be? Let me know when you want me to start taking the pictures and we're going to go put it on eBay or Amazon and get it sold. And what did you say when I came up with that idea? can't sell
0: this. I can't sell I it. I love this thing. I mean, if anything, I'm going to go buy a protective case for it now. You know, and what's funny is if you ask me, I had Yoda here. And I thought because I had the orange snake, he was going to be worth more than Boba Fett. Right. But holy cow. I mean, Boba this Fett was my favorite. You know, you know you have a favorite toy when as a child, you, you want to like take this toy everywhere like you take him shopping oh yeah you take him that's why you run a risk of losing your favorite toys because you take you him. You everywhere you sleep with him in the bed because you love your toys I can't believe I still have this thing but I'm not selling it but it is there is something to this is that a rational Brian should I should sell this I should totally
1: sell this because it could help with kids college and so forth but I'm not but because you are irrational no offense I am too You struggle with the endowment effect, which is when we value something more just because we own it. If I gave you the opportunity to go buy that action figure today for what it costs, you wouldn't do it. But you could sell it and have that money. You won't do it. It is a very irrational thought.
0: It it is irrational. And I I will tell you where this happens in your financial life, because I've made this mistake Mm -hmm. as well. Think about selling your house. A lot of us live in our houses. We have great memories. We raise our children in our houses. We think these things are worth a lot. So when you go to sell your house, you're you're putting the value at a very high level. If you watch any real estate show, they do this. You see this happen all the time. Real estate agents have to battle this problem. And I did this. This is In the background here, this is my very first house that my wife and I built.
1: Which, by the way, Down when, in the, Georgia. when the whole team saw this, they're like, what a beautiful house. I love it. This house was beautiful. beautiful you, house. you
0: know what the problem was is that you had to go up a gazillion stairs because this house was so Those high grocery up. carrying muscles got uh, worked but, out But sure. it is one of those things where I think we put this house on the market. Now, this sounds so cheap living here in Nashville now. And everybody in California and New York's going to be like, holy cow, you can buy that for that? I put this house on the market for two hundred twenty-five thousand. A week later, I got an offer for two hundred fifteen thousand with no closing cost because I, it was a military relocation. That sounds great. It was my uh, endowment effect. I, I told, hey, the real estate agent. I told her, hey, if we um, if we get a contract in the first week, we're going to get the full two twenty-five. You know what? I ended up selling this house for. I sold this house to my second real estate agent's nephew. Because I dropped the price to one ninety nine and then gave them ten thousand dollars of closing costs. So if you think about one eighty nine net, right, from two fifteen,
1: I got destroyed, you and it was not, all because of the endowment effect. All because you placed more value on it than it was actually there. So if we can recognize that early on, perhaps we can make wiser financial decisions. Now, I'll give you some grace here. First house, you know, you started, you know, you started the failing house. There's some sentimental value, so I get that. That That's what that's
0: the behavioral economics that screws it up. So realize, when you, especially big financial transactions like your house, you, just because you have an emotional attach to, uh, attachment to it, make sure you're taking every offer serious uh-huh. because it might be your last one without
1: gutting the price. All right, let's see if you guys can get this next one. Now, <laughs> this one's interesting to me because... I thought that I was going to be picking on you as it relates to this idea. And we started telling the story. The whole content team started picking on me. Yeah. So uh, when you guys come to visit us in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, there is a Kilwin's Chocolate Factory. Is that the name of it? Kilwin's Bakery, Killwin's, whatever it's called. Uh, right below us and right around the corner. So it's wonderful if you ever want to go get some ice cream or whatever.
0: Well, <laughs> we got nothing for that, by the way. One of
1: the wonderful things that you can do when you go into ones is they have all these different types of fudge. they got dart fudge and white fudge and peanut butter fudge. And they will very, very happily just slice you off a little chunk and let you have a sample so you can try the different flavors. So one of the things that I do if I'm ever out or around downtown just walking around I'll just pop into to kill and say, hey, I'd like to try the turtle fudge. And they will give me the fudge, and I'll take it, and I'll eat it, and I'll say, wow, that was delicious, thank you. And then I'll just walk out and go on my way, and I'll just leave. So
0: this is a, your a horrible example because you're actually breaking I know, the that's behavioral what I, economics. Because this is what we've tried to explain. Everybody knows me. When I go on vacation with the family, if, if we ever go into an ice cream shop, and they're offering samples— And this is why even at the mall, when they're trying to give you the free samples of chicken, as soon as I won't take them because I know if I
1: take a sample, I'm probably going to buy something from that person. And there's no problem. I've been with you enough to see this. You 100% are going to buy it. So Bo is the
0: exception. The majority of you are probably just like me in the fact that if somebody offers you a sample or they offer you something free, you're going to feel indebted to that person. Mm -hmm. So what we talk about here from a behavioral economics standpoint is that there is a social contract that's built into every one of us. There's a reason, guys, that when anybody's trying to sell you a product, they first try to ingratiate themselves. Mm -hmm. Look, we're guilty to a degree. Think about this. You come to the Money Guy show. We talk about the abundance cycle learn apply mm-hmm. grow we give you all this free advice so that down the road when you have a level of success you remember the guys who gave you all the all the free, free advice <laughs> this is this is a social contract mm-hmm. this is such an effective thing that you need to be aware of what's going on but Look, I think the abundance cycle is actually healthy because we're part of your success by giving you all this free education. But let's talk about where this actually plays out in other areas.
1: Yeah, so uh, we think that uh, one of the ones that are are most common in our industry, and we see this all the time from prospects and even some of our clients, there will be a local neighborhood advisor or or retail advisor who will say, hey, come out to this steak dinner our treat, we'd love to treat you and just tell you about our program, just tell you about our platform. And what you don't realize is you're going to go get that steak dinner and you are going to get the heavy, hard sales pitch for whatever the thing that advisor is selling. So in reality, that free steak dinner may be very, very costly if you fall prey to the sales technique. Well, think about timeshares. Oh, that's another why, great example. Why
0: do they give you? I mean, think about this. Next time somebody pitches you a timeshare, they'll offer you... Massages. They'll offer you nice meals. Uh-huh. I mean, these are things all that have a over a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollar value. They can't cannot do that unless what they're trying to sell you is lucrative enough to uh-huh. make it happen. But they are trying to engage a social contract contract so you have some type of connection yep. with them and you feel obligated to pay them back for that gift.
1: Now, there are some mutants out there. I don't want to suggest that my Kilwin's example means I'm a mutant. It probably just means that I don't conform to the social norms. (laughs) I probably have an issue there. However, we do have friends that say, hey, I love to go on vacation and I love to sit through the timeshare presentation because I know that no matter what, (laughs) I'm not going to buy the timeshare And I'm still going to get the free excursion or the free massage or whatever. Well, if your time is worth that and you're okay sacrificing some of your vacation time, that's great. What you need to understand is whenever there are free offers, you should always just think in the back of your mind, what's the ulterior motive? What's the catch? What's the catch? What's the thing they're going to try to coerce me to do? If you can go into that with your eyes wide open, you're going to set yourself up to recognize it pretty early on.
0: You ready to move on to the next one? Oh, yeah, I'm ready for this one. This one, this one kind of, guys, I want you all to know, you can already probably tell, Bo's sitting to my left here. Bo's been with me, what, 12 years, going on 13 years now? 13, yeah, long, long time. So this next picture cracked me up because <laughs> Bo, as you all can probably tell, is pretty persuasive. He's one of those guys that you can see there's one of the earlier pictures. Look at those sweet pleats we both yeah, are wearing. Yeah, those,
1: those are pleated slacks, if you all wanted to know, both and then, of us.
0: I'm not sure how the pitcher on the right made it into this because I look like a middle-aged man with a bowl cut that just ate a huge buffet.
1: Well, the reason is is because you were quite a middle aged man. It wasn't quite a bowl cut, but we did just finish eating a buffet in this picture.
0: So here's here's the point of, of this whole setup is that Bo is a CFA. We uh-huh. know that you know that's the probably the most prestigious investment credential you can get is the CFA because it's three years worth of testing, and Bo is a persuasive guy. So probably after he had passed the second CFA exam, he comes to me and he says, Brian... I think I've got this whole investment thing figured out,
1: figured out and um, we should start doing stock options. I, 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 I could see the market. I could see which way it was going to move. And I, I had just learned about these calls and I just learned about these puts and I heard about these straddles. And I said, Brian, I got it. Don't worry. Hey, I know you've been managing money for like uh, over a decade now, but me, freshly made at early 20s, I passed the test. I've got a great way that we could invest your money. And by the way, I didn't have any money back then, so I pitched it with Brian's money. And he was like, you know what? Okay, he passed the CFA. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. So here's uh, one of the worst
0: things that can happen to you when you're trying to do these unique type of strategies is to win with the first one. Mm -hmm. So our first trade worked out really well. Really, really well. So then what does that do? That gives us even more confidence Mm -hmm. that we are so good at this, we should do more of we the same behavior with options. Guess what guys? I keep this account open. I turned 1000 into 3000, 3000 into $12. And that $12 still sits in the account to this day. So you guys can see that you too can screw this up. And 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 what is what are I think this overconfidence comes from a weird place, but we had a cool stat that, that FTE Daniel found.
1: Yeah, this is what uh, we thought was pretty interesting. 65%, this is a, according to a study done, <laughs> 65% of people think that they are smarter than the average person. No,
0: is it just because I'm so nerdy that I'm the only one? In all the oh, show, show meetings, I started cracking up every time I saw this stat because we all know if once the number got over 50 – it's not appropriate. It I doesn't mean, it's, make so 65% of people think they're smarter than the average person. Here's another thing. If you ask
1: somebody if they're smarter than the average person, the smarter they are, the more likely they are to actually say they're not smarter. So we tried to do this little internal study where we went around and started asking all the members of the firm like where they thought. Everybody passed the test. Everybody started doing the, oh, I don't know, I'm in the lower half. Yeah. So it was not as near. We did not get 65% of our population to concede to this, but 65% of folks think that they're smarter than the average person. Well, what that tells me is that there's a lot of folks out there that struggle with this behavioral finance concept.
0: So the concept we're talking about really is the overconfidence bias. Mm -hmm. And you see this in investing all the time. I mean, if you think about how often we see people that think, hey, I'll go time the market. I I can get in this thing. Who needs to worry about where it is, I'm going to be able to figure out the perfect entry point or the perfect exit. Why do you, else do you hear the saying, buy low, sell high? Well, heck, that means you must have the ability to go pinpoint the perfect time to buy in there. There's a lot of confidence to make that decision. And what
1: I think is so remarkable is we saw this like, very, very vividly in the last election. We saw folks who said, hey, if this person wins, the market's going to tank. I want to go to cash. And then we'd have another person say the exact opposite. If this person wins, the market's <laughs> going to take, I want to go to cash. And they were so adamant that they knew exactly how the market was going to react to something that there was no way to know how the market was going to react. Yet somehow, because they read this article and they followed this service and they have this certain belief system, they felt like they could time it to get it right. And what we found was people were wrong and yeah. people continually are wrong, whether it's, in the dot-com bubble bursting, whether it's in the 2008 recession, whether it's an election cycle, no matter what the thing is, people are, on average, wrong more often than right when it comes to timing the market. Well, you
0: see this with individual stocks,
1: and then, of course, managed mutual funds. I mean, it's we recently
0: one. did a show, and, it, and it, we even have a slide for this. It shows how often do the index funds, mm-hmm. the low-cost index funds, smoke the managed Alternative.
1: Yeah, so if we sp- spread this out, and this is from the SPIVUS 2020 survey, if we look at this over a 15-year cycle, 87.7% of active large-cap managers underperform the index. If you look at mid-cap, 82.2% of active mid-cap managers underperform their index. Small-cap, 82.2% underperform the index. And then if you stretch it out to international – of active managers underperform the index. Now we got comments after last show saying, yeah, but there are you know those managers who 12-13% of the time there yeah, but you gotta pick those managers and you gotta get it right every year. Every year. Or you or you have to be able to pick the one that's gonna do it for the next 15 years. We just think that that's a pretty futile exercise.
0: And that's why next time you see realize there's a huge difference between speculating and investing. Speculating means you're trying to play momentum and all these other things. Investing means you believe in, the, in what you're doing and you have a long-term mindset. So think about that when you're talking about gold, options, Bitcoin. Yep. These are all distractions that I would argue are a lot of them fall into the speculation category not long-term investing. So just make sure that you're not suffering from that overconfidence bias because it does have a negative effect on your finances. Exactly right. So, Bo, I thought this one was unique because you essentially made up your own behavioral economics term. Well, you're not supposed to tell them that. We're just supposed (laughs) to say it and then they
1: quote it and they give us credit. But this is a real thing. This actually does exist. So I want to tell a story.
0: When I graduated college, I had several friends from other colleges, too. It's not just University of Georgia. I had friends at Auburn University, elsewhere. But one of my friends from Auburn, he had this Ford Ranger pickup truck paid for. But you know what? He got a great IT job right out of school, making more money than any of us. I will go ahead and tell you. If you want to know what an accounting major from University of Georgia in the mid-'90s made – you started out at 28000 dollars Okay. An IT professional, even in the 90s, would start at around 50. That oh, was, that was that's a big huge money back then. And, and the thing is, he went for he went to a big public company. He traded in the paid for Ranger for an awesome Camaro. I mean, look, now I grew up now, um, his grew- did not have these wheels. We had FTE Daniel pull this, but his this is very similar to the Camaro. Now, well, as he was from Alabama and Camaros. And by the way, if I had this car in Georgia, this would, I would have been the coolest, coolest kid in high kid school. Coolest kid in high school, no doubt about it. I don't know now that I would want this car, but in high school, I would have been the coolest kid in the, in the high school with this. But the thing is, is that he quickly realized the insurance premiums cost more than his car payment. Mm-hmm. He got rid of this car within a year and a half. And bought a used car because he was getting eaten alive. And I'm just telling you guys, there is something wrong with the fact that he graduated college, immediately had a huge head start that he didn't have debt, he didn't have you know a car payment. So he went out there and rewarded himself with this purchase just because he felt like he was
1: deserving of it. But he's not the only one that made this mistake. So this guy was in IT. So I'm going to give him some grace, right? He studied IT and technology and that sort of thing. Surely someone who graduates from college and they have a financial background and perhaps they even have a financial planning degree wouldn't do something so insane as what your friend did. Yet... <laughs> Yet, young (laughs) FTE Daniel, 20 year old, 21 year old Bo Hansen decided that when I got my first job, I should trade in my paid for F 150 that ran just fine, had no issues at all, for a big boy car. And I did not even care that that big boy car came with a 9.1% interest rate. Oh, goodness because gracious. I had no credit. I was a young college kid. So I decided to go buy a 2005 Acura TL. And Daniel, I don't know how you actually found a picture of me driving this thing <laughs> on a closed course. <laughs> but that is absolutely wonderful. Uh, so I want to like be able to pick on your friend that was in IT. But even really intelligent. You see what I did there, Reeves? Really... Sound people who understand financial planning still fall prey to this financial behavioral finance Well, this happens all
0: the time. And we all know automobiles are financial napalm to your long-term success because this is – we see this with doctors as well. Mm -hmm. You see them graduate, get through their residency, and then the first thing they do is go buy the fancy luxury car – totally screwing up the financial order of operations. But it is this desire, the lack of self-control, the lack of discipline, the inability to understand deferred gratification is the building blocks, mm-hmm. the adult marshmallow test. So you can take a little bit of today and have a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. That's what's important. That's the behavior. So you need to be very aware of what's your coin turbo. Bo?
1: I-, I called it accelerated gratification, right? So lack of self-control is probably better. But if we do not master deferred gratification, we accelerate gratification. We borrow from our future selves for today. We know that that does not always end up well. In my specific circumstance, I'd have been much better off instead of going to pay that 9.1% interest. I should have opened a Roth IRA. I should have been getting my dollars working. So we know that If we want to be sound financial decision makers, we need to subscribe to the idea of deferred gratification. You always say, save just a a little little bit bit of today for a great big beautiful tomorrow. Here's the thing
0: I always tell people. Wealth creation is surprisingly simple. All you need is discipline, Mm -hmm. money, and time. And that first part, that number one component is discipline, which is what deferred gratification is. Just don't overlook that. And that's why we always are talking about 88 times over. Bo, show them how powerful $1 can be for everybody out there. That's
1: exactly right. If you haven't gone out to our resource page, you can go to moneyguy.com backslash resources. Let me do that again. (laughs) (laughs) moneyguy.com backslash resources. And you actually can go download this deliverable that shows you just how valuable every dollar in your army of dollar bills can be. We know that a 20-year-old right now that can subscribe to deferred gratification, if he can just walk away from one dollar, it can turn into 88 by the time he's 65. A 30-year-old, if they can walk away from one dollar, it'll turn into 23. A 40-year-old, one dollar will turn into seven. This just shows you exactly how powerful every army in your do- every dollar in your army of dollar bills can be, but also how costly those seemingly small decisions can be like paying 9.1% interest for a car you can't afford early on in life.
0: Yeah, so don't let every dollar is so powerful. And go ahead and set up those those there's things you can do to protect yourself from this desire to not do deferred gratification. Mm-hmm. It's like set up automatic investment plans. That's Make it. sure you're maximizing the match. Um, and then also, begin with the end in mind. you know that is a concept that is so powerful for all of us. Know what you're working towards and know your why and it will help and definitely understand the financial order of operations. It will protect you from a lot of these
1: bad decision making traps that you can fall into. Love it all right so let's jump into this next one now this one uh, is kind of beautiful because i've gotten to I've gotten to see this firsthand. Uh, if you look at this picture, and if you're out, th- again, if you're out and listening to this in iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, any of the audible uh, ways you listen to this, you ought to go check this out on YouTube because we got pictures up here. Uh, Brian, this is actually me and you and a couple of your buddies in Las Vegas.
0: Yeah, you've actually been out to Vegas I've with me. I've been to Vegas with I've you. been going, now here's the thing, everybody's going to see this and they're gonna go like, Brian's a big gambler? I'm shocked to find out that the money guy is a big gambler. Don't worry, guys. I do not disappoint. Is because, and you pick on me for this. Oh, yeah. Is because I probably in my 20s, when I first went out to Biloxi or Tunica for the first time, mm-hmm. I gambled probably $200. Two, that was the bankroll for gambling on that trip, $200. And now that I'm in my Late forties, I still probably gamble less than five hundred dollars. <laughs> you know, even though my income has gone in a completely different place, so there, there's I can't explain it. There is a part of me, and but I do I, I get in if you because on the next slide you'll see I've got uh, there's Quentin in the background too. Is that I. I enjoy, you know, notice we're not on
1: a craps uh-uh. table. You're, I don't is this in the high rollers room? I what? don't think this is in the high <laughs> rollers room, is it?
0: This is the way to play craps and being cheap with it because you're playing on the machine uh-huh. versus with the dealers. And it really is there's a reason that I'm this way is that I just I can't stand to lose the money in the casino. Mm-hmm. I'm much more equipped to run a casino than I am to gamble in a casino. So
1: even though you could think about you know, taking $100 and putting in all the number and that number hitting and making a zillion dollars, the excitement of that for you... Well, the did, loss would bother me the, because it's by chance. The excitement does not outweigh the potential loss of losing that $100. And there is a very real behavioral economics, behavioral finance concept that goes along with it.
0: Well, and, and I want to defend myself before we throw the concept up there, is that I know the odds. I'm kind of nerdy. So I know that they don't build these casinos, these huge, man-made, just I can't even think of the words to put how big – because it's the first time you go out to Las Vegas. It's like, oh overwhelming. My so it is, but I know how stacked against me the deck is where – That's why when people tell me investing is gambling, I'm like, you're crazy. Do you see the casinos they're building off of gambling? Mm -hmm. Investing actually works out much more in your favor because you can look at variables. You can look at values. You can look at trading prices. You actually get to put your thumb on the scale of success by knowing that the world is always evolving and you can tap into the innovation I'm just not going to
1: lose my money on something that I know I can lose. That's right. I love it. And so the, the concept that you, I don't want to say struggle with, because I think this actually benefits you there, is loss aversion. This happens when the fear of a potential loss is greater from the, than the enjoyment from a game. But you say it's because you recognize what gambling is. You recognize when the odds are stacked against you. Where we see this play out, though, is a lot of investors suffer from loss aversion because they don't understand what the odds are, and actually, potentially, the odds might be stacked into their favor in terms of how they deploy their army of dollars. Well, we bills. see this.
0: I mean, because like the markets are really close to hitting an all-time high again, so a lot of people are like. I'm going to sit in cash and wait for the next big downturn. Or you see people, maybe they got scared because of the pandemic that we had earlier in the year. They go to cash at the bottom. Yep. And then they're like, well, I'm just going, I'm going to stay here and feel better about it because that loss aversion kicks in. And guys, I'm telling you, you can create yourself a lot of trouble because. It's just we're in this ever-evolving world where we have innovation, developments. It's the law of accelerating returns. If you think it's amazing that we went from this I, I, you know iPod that's right over my shoulder to now we have these iPhones, mm-hmm. now we have all these things, that's not slowing down. Innovation is an incredible thing, but yet we still will have people that will try to time the market or stay out of the market and sit in cash mm-hmm. because they
1: have this loss aversion and are just too scared to get into it. And so, Brian, you came up with this idea that I thought was just beautiful because we had talked about how you know the odds when it comes to uh, Vegas. When, you, know, you, don't, you said they don't build these huge monstrosities without the odds That's being in their word, favor. It's a monstrosity. Yeah, I was, I've been racking my brain trying to come <laughs> up with it the whole time. So you said, hey, let's just go look. Let's just pick uh, 500 biggest companies uh, in this country – And let's just go see what the odds look like. Let's look at the chart and let's go all the way back. We won't just do 10 years. We won't just do 15 years. Let's go all the way back to 1980. So that's what a 40 year period, an entire working career, working life here, right? What I think is really interesting is if you were someone who was afraid, you know, had some loss aversion, you were afraid of investing. What I think is really interesting, when I look at this, it does not appear to me that there was really a bad time to get started. Even even if you got started at the top of the dot-com bubble bursting or at the very beginning before the Great Recession happened, even where we sit right now, you've probably done okay from an investment standpoint so long as you didn't let that loss aversion cause you to make a drastic decision like going to cash.
0: Remember, the optimist in me says we're part of the law of accelerating returns, meaning that, You're actually seeing all the innovation, the globalization of the world, how things are there's lots of things that are going to let this process continue to speed up. But when you look at a visual, and even though for my podcast listeners who can't see the visual, I want you to put this in your brain. Yes, there are ups and downs in the short term. But if you can just understand the visual, and I've used this a number of times of you are a person that's walking up a hill with a yo-yo, meaning that yo-yo is going up and down, up and down. But since you're walking up a mountain, it's not even a hill. This thing is a mountain. Since you're walking up the mountain, even though the yo-yo in the short term is going up and down, you're going to higher and higher places. So just be careful with that, that loss aversion because there is a famous quote by Peter Lynch. And this was his quote, More people lost money waiting for corrections and anticipating corrections than the actual corrections.
1: Uh, Read that again, because that is just so, so, so
0: good. More people lost money waiting for corrections and anticipating
1: corrections than the actual corrections. They would have been much better off just riding through the storm than trying to completely avoid the storm altogether. I think that's just so poignant. We should realize that because... We don't know. You know, a lot of people in the comments are saying, yeah, but we don't know what it looks like over the next 20 years, the next 40 years. That's true. We don't know what it looks like in here. But here's what we do know. There will be storms. There, were, there will be volatility. There will be uncertainty. But we've seen that even in uncertain times, if you have a plan in place, you have your risk right, you can control the things that you can control. It's not that difficult to set yourself up for long-term success.
0: Uh, so I, you just said, we don't know what it's going to be like in 20 years. Here's what I do know. I'm going to continue to be buying every month with yep. my automata- automated investment plan. Because right. I believe, we'll set a system up and let it rock and roll. I'm an optimist. We'll make it through whatever comes our way.
1: Love it. Love it. Love it.
0: So let's talk about, Bo. This oh. one is you, man. Oh, man. Holy cow. When I saw the, the slide of this one, All right. I was like, I don't even remember this fad.
1: I Okay. So there are some things I'm not proud like. The TL, I get it's learning, but I am not not proud of that. This one, I'd say I'm not so proud of uh, because now I think we all, if we really think about this, we've all fallen prey to some fashion trends in our day that perhaps we should not have fallen prey to. This one for me in middle school, I'm thinking like sixth to eighth grade-ish was especially egregious. Now, I mentioned this to the team. A lot of the team didn't know about this, so maybe this was regionally where I grew up. But I'll be curious here in the comments if you had kids that were in that age, or if you were that Show age. Show them the
0: picture. You keep. I think you're so
1: embarrassed. You're not showing them the picture. It was the Jinko phase. It's Jinko a jeans. Brand of these jeans things. that were like egregiously baggy. Like they covered up your entire shoe. You couldn't. When I was in middle school, this was all the rage. You wanted the. Big, huge, baggy jeans. Looking back at this, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my goodness, what was I thinking? What were my grandparents thinking, even letting me, like, go buy these jeans? But it was the fad. It was the phase. It was the thing that was popular. And what I realized was the reason I wanted these jeans wasn't because of the utility of them. It wasn't because I could run fast in them or jump high or do anything special. It was only because it was what was popular. And it's what all the other kids were doing.
0: Just to make a description here, because you know we have podcast listeners that um, listen to this. They don't get the visual. These are denim, blue jeans, mm-hmm. that bow out. They're not even bell bottoms. These no, things, they... like you could sweep with how wide. I mean, I got to say, that on, on that guy's jeans on the right, those have to be 18 to 24 inches unbelievable. wide at the bottom. So these things are huge. What I've realized when I see these pictures and I find out that Bo actually participated in these trends, I saved you. Just you finding me in the wilderness. That I pulled you out of the woods and saved you from bad decision making. If you're falling prey to trends like you did, you did. So it is. It is one of those things where. But I think there's a big. If you think about the behavioral economics, where we see this, this is, of course, herd mentality. Because nobody in there. Just sane mentality buys jeans that have a 24-inch bo- opening at the bottom because, if anything, if it rains outside, you probably can't move because it's no. just too heavy to and move the, your and, legs at that and point. And this is
1: ridiculous, too. Now they, The bottoms always got wet because you're just yeah. trampling on it's it. It was disaster. just horrible. It made no
0: sense. So read the definition because I think this one's so powerful. Read the definition what herd mentality so her is. So herd mentality
1: is when we would rather travel with a herd, even if they are headed for a cliff, even if they are making poor decisions, even if they are going in the wrong direction – we would rather blend in and go with the herd, and we know that in most circumstances in life, that's just not a good idea. And we have found, especially in the financial world, in your personal financial life, it is not what you want to. You want to be a to.
0: contrarian, and I'm going to go ahead because we've got we've got the shortened quote. I'm going to read the whole quote from one of the greatest investors ever. And this is the full quote. You'll, you'll recognize it immediately. Investors should remember that excitement and expenses are their enemies. And if they insist on trying to time their participation in equities, they should try to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy only when others are fearful. That's, of course, from the 2004 letter to shareholders from the Oracle from Omaha, Mr. Warren Buffett.
1: Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. And we tell this to our clients, to prospects, to you guys all the time. When it comes to investing, if you can master this one thing, this one contrarian idea, you're going to set yourself up for success. Now, this is not what this says. Hey, you just mentioned, hey, markets are getting, you know, hitting all-time highs. Well, if you're in a market that's constantly expanding, constantly growing, you're going to go through some all-time highs. It doesn't mean that you just have to – sell everything and wait for the downturn. We've already proven that that's sort of a futile exercise. It means you have to have your risk, your allocation, right? And you have to recognize both opportunities that present themselves. I'm thinking like great recession, downturns, like, you know, uh, in the pandemic, when we saw a big downturn go on earlier this year. And then you have to think about things you need to be nervous about. In 2007. There were some cracks in the wall well, of worry that you could be thinking well, of. There's a
0: visual for this. We actually show them the mark, the cycle of market emotions. Da- you know, FTE Daniel put this together because it- this is the thing. Now, look, I think it's an ever expanding economy. So you are. This is just showing you the yo-yo uh, in the short term, whereas you can go through a cycle. But pay attention to people typically when you hear the term buy low sell high that's what the goal is uh-huh. but most people actually do the exact opposite is that they will buy high and then they sell low yep. because look at what happens there on the cycle of market emotions. At the tippity top, that's where you're going to dinner parties and others, and everybody's telling you how much money they're making in Bitcoin or individual stocks, and people go, wow, I'm so smart, I'm so good at this. And that's your point of maximum financial risk. Yep. It's when, and that's the herd mentality. Everybody wants in when everybody's making money. Right. But then look what happens in the economic cycle. When we go through a recession, when we go through a depression of some sort, people 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 go, got to get to the exits, Mm -hmm. got to get the heck out of this thing. And that's where you see capitulation, you see depression, and that's actually the maximum point of opportunity. But you know what? You can't give it away at Mm -hmm. that point. And that's why it is the maximum point of opportunity. So if you can be aware of this, understand herd mentality and be a
1: contrarian, it will set you up for long-term success. Now, somebody in here just said, yeah, I just wish I could know when the tops and the bottoms were. Yeah, you and me both we would all be very, very wealthy. If you're someone who's in the accumulation phase, a really good way to not have to get it exactly right is to be a constant saver. Have a dollar-cost averaging plan going on, whether that's in your employer-sponsored 401k or 403b, or whether that's contributing money to a Roth IRA or building money in a taxable account. If you're constantly saving, constantly putting dollars into your army of dollar bills you will be taking advantage of that point of maximum financial opportunity when it presents itself. Well, I've even got a – here's a strategy that will work. If we ever – whenever, as soon as we hit bear
0: market status, guys, just go ahead and promise yourself you're going to go ahead and have the fortitude that instead of trying to figure out how you're getting out, that you're going to be a financial mutant, you're going to be an optimist, and you're going to increase your monthly investment. You're going to figure out a way that in this downturn, you're going to figure out how you get more money – Go against the herd, be that contrarian, and maximize your potential and opportunity. I love it. So let's go to the last one, Bo. And I'm gonna let you kind of set this one up, because this one actually came to us from some fellow
1: content creators that did Mm -hmm. such a good job. We're like, we gotta give these guys a shout out. Let's use their idea. All right, so I wanna give you an example. Let's suppose that you were this little stick figure standing right here, and you wanna go buy some headphones. And those headphones you wanna buy cost $15. Well, you know that there's another store that is 10 minutes away, so it's a 10-minute walk, that sells those exact same headphones for $10. Wow, that's so a pretty good either, discount. You could either stay where you are and pay $15, or you could walk a measly 10 minutes and pay 10 You would save $5. Wow, that's a pretty good deal. So I'd, I'd probably walk that I 10 I would minutes. walk that, right? If I could pay $15, pay $10, I would walk that. All right, so let's assume now instead of buying headphones, you are going to buy a laptop. And as you stand where you are right now, the laptop costs $675. Or you could walk 10 minutes down the road to the other store, and the laptop costs
0: $670. Man, this is like one of those when they show you a dress and you're trying to guess the color. Mm-hmm. This, the, you just change the, the way this entire illustration looks to me. Even though it's the exact same $5, it did something
1: completely different in my brain. That's exactly right. And so, uh, again, this is thanks to our friends over at Two Cents. This is what they said. There's a 33% discount on the headphones and only a 0.7% discount on the laptop. Well, because we perceive the 33% discount to be so much greater, we are more likely to take that 10-minute walk than we would on the laptop, when in reality, $5 savings Is $5 savings, no matter which product you're buying. I think, I mean,
0: when I saw this, and by the way, if you guys haven't gone and checked it out, go check out Two Cents. I mean, look, we get nothing for sharing that. It's just that I want to give a compliment where Mm -hmm. we see good work being created. This, This was a great illustration. They got some really good creatives that are obviously working on it. But it is one of those things, when I saw this, I was like, man, I think that even i who consider myself a good contrarian a good person that can spot i have good emotional intelligence i fall prey to this sometimes yep. and this is, i'm going i'm even going to flip the script to a financial concept where i see this happen and even more is this same because this is talking about the power of the discount seeing that you could say 33% mm-hmm. is just so powerful to you versus when it's only a 0.7% discount i think that this also can play out to when you're buying stuff as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yep. So when you think about this in terms of new car purchases, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I could buy the basic, you know, if you're buying a brand new car, you're like, yeah, I could get into that car for $18,000, but you know what? I can get the one that has leather for 21000 mm-hmm. Even though three grand is a ton of money, you'll think about, man, but I could, I, you know, over a ten, you know, five years, yep. seven years, I, you know, I ought to do that. Because not only do I get the leather, I get the moonroof. Right, exactly you know, right. so you start because it's a percentage of the total purchase. It doesn't feel as big. It's the same thing when you buy a house. Bo, you just built a house. Absolutely. Now, my builder, he told me I can do absolutely anything. But it's going to cost you. Anything is possible, and I have figured out what that cost is. It's two. It's
1: it's between a thousand to two thousand dollars for every ask. Mm. Uh, uh, that's one hundred percent true. And what's amazing is when you're building a house, you're thinking, man, all right, this is the total. Okay, well I'll just okay, it's thousand bucks. Oh, what's well, a mortgage? It's thirty. Okay, here's two thousand bucks. Okay, here's a thousand bucks. When in reality, if I was walking through the grocery store and I saw something that was thousand dollars and two thousand No way am I just going to start willy-nilly grabbing them like we do when we build a house.
0: But in relationship to the total purchase price, $1,000 doesn't feel like much. The problem is is that there's 75 things that you need to spend $1,000 on, and that's where it adds up. So I'm just telling you, that transaction utility is a legitimate thing that you need to be very aware of It's because... Yes, it makes you feel better. The bigger percentage, the better deal you're getting. But it also minimizes the flip side of this. The converse side of this is the bigger the transaction, the more you're willing to move things up because it's playing psychological or behavioral economics games with what's going on in your brain.
1: That's exactly right. And this is kind of the financial concept you should take away, is that every single dollar is powerful. We've already said earlier in the show, uh, money is fungible. A dollar here is worth a dollar there. Don't let the perception of value fool you. Make sure you understand what you're spending, why you're spending, and are you getting a value out of the dollars that you are spending.
0: So, but we just went through nine behavioral economics concepts that can manipulate you, persuade you, move you to do things. And here's what you would think that it's so simple that you just need to go memorize these nine. And by the way, there's even more, Sure. but that's not the case. A lot of times, guys, I want to go ahead and tell you, these things get stacked on top of each other. So you might have somebody who not only offers you a free dinner, but then they might try to manipula- manipulate you with other ways too. So these things could be stacked to persuade you, even make this even more powerful. But don't let this stuff educate yourself, equip yourself, so that you know what your why is, what's your financial order of operation. What, you need to have all these tools so that you will be equipped to make sure you're doing the best possible way of getting yourself to financial independence and building wealth.
1: And our charge is we're going to be that resource for you to help you keep your ship true. If you've not gone out to our website, go to moneyguy.com. Make sure we have your email address. We have deliverables out on the website that you can take, you can use. You can send them to friends. You can share them with colleagues. You can share, share them with family members. We want you to have access to them so that you can take your finances to the next level and we're going to be the resource that stays here to help you be aware of these things that you need to be aware of. So we've talked about the abundance
0: cycle. We work with clients in 42 states. If you feel like you're, you know, finances have gotten to the level that you do need a co-pilot. You've graduated. You know We're Johnny Appleseed planting the seeds. Mm -hmm. You learn, apply, and grow. Now you're at the level of success that you do want to take it to the next level. Reach out to us. You can go to Abound Wealth. You can go to Money Guy. And don't forget, we're so close. So close. We're going to reach 100,000 by year end. That's the goal, but I can't do it without you. So please go sign up on YouTube, subscribe, Ring the bell for good service and let us know you're part of the Money Guy family. Guys, we'll be back soon. I'm your host, Brian Preston, Mr. Bo Hansen, Money Guy team, out.
1: The Money Guy Show is hosted by Brian Preston. Abound
0: Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Abound Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through The Money Guy Show. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.